I always encourage people to focus on the outcomes because you literally will keep doing the same thing over and over again if people pretend that you have to impress them and make them satisfied with definitions. That's not how equity and justice happens. This is Before It's Too Late. I'm your host, Christian Suzan. Let's learn together what matters most in life. We are very excited to speak with community-based sociologist and criminologist Dr. Kimya Nuru-Dennis today. Kimya is invested in supporting the needs of people with minoritized and underserved demographic and cultural identities and experiences. In this important conversation, you will learn from her why she's criticizing the typical diversity, inclusion and anti-racism trainings especially at schools, police departments, and medical health providers. She's talking about why she finds these trainings and workshops a waste of time, how no change will be achieved by them, but what needs to be done in order to move the needle to more equity. I was very impressed by how bluntly and honestly she's calling out the power majorities who will claim that they have made an effort and then feel good about it, as she puts it, but not changing anything. Every human has prejudice. Every human has assumptions and bias. The difference is in the people having the ability to act on it, Kimya makes clear. We will hear from her how she encourages people to focus on the outcome wanted. Focus on what's happening in families, communities, schools, and changing policies and practices there, not waiting for the laws. And read literature. Let's listen to Dr. Kimia Nuru-Dennis on Before It's Too Late today. Hello, Dr. Kimia. Welcome to Before It's Too Late. Thank you for having me on Before It's Too Late. Kimia, you are a community advocate You are a sociologist and criminologist, educator and researcher, and you are invested in educating, training, evaluating and assessing for-profit collectives and non-profit collectives. You have founded a platform called 365diversity.com, on which you promote shedding light on the flaws and the unconscious biases that are in the trainings around diversity, inclusion, and anti-racism. Tell us more. I found that really interesting. So first, I am a community advocate and a social scientist. I do not do unconscious bias work. I consider that work to be a waste of mostly time and money. So no, 365 diversity and my work as a black woman social scientist does not do anything regarding implicit bias, unconscious bias. Those are meaningless. They don't change anything. And so that's why I always speak against bias trainings. I speak against bias assessments. I speak against most most trainings, most workshops. How are they meaningless? Because people have not explained what they've accomplished as a result of bias trainings. Okay, please elaborate on this. I want to understand. 
So my work is based in centuries of Black work that existed before there were such thing as New York Times bestseller books, before before Black people were even getting paid to do racial justice trainings for white people. So all of this new stuff that people have discovered in the past four years, past 10 years, it's existed for centuries. Black people have done this racial justice work for centuries. We've been lynched because of it. We've been kicked out of schools because of it. We've been fired because of it from jobs. We still are. And so I always tell organizations and individuals because the two common groups that harm us the most do the most bias trainings. Those are police departments and medical and health organizations and facilities. They don't change policies. They don't change practices. They don't change their assessments of actions. They don't punish employees who abuse people. Instead, they'll do assessments and bias trainings. And it's based on this falsehood that power Oppressions, inequities are 100% about prejudice and bias. So that's when I teach as a professor and when I do community work, I address the difference between people's beliefs and thoughts and people's power and actions. So bias trainings, including when done by sociologists, the outcome tends to be bias trainers getting paid. Then they'll say they're gonna do a follow-up assessment. At the end of the day, Bias trainings are really designed to make sure people are not too offended. They're not too held accountable. And everyone pretends that they're going to make some changes happen and changes do not happen. So I am opposed to bias trainings. I've been opposed to that for many years since they were first introduced. I'm opposed to them, whether it's used by the military, police, medical and health professionals, schools, anyone who uses it, I'm strongly opposed to that because never has anyone shown that there's a change in results. Never. So you're saying change has never been measured or there was never the effort made to measure the change and hold the community accountable? Well, people will claim that they had an effort. That's always the tactic used. That's why schools don't change curriculum. That's why standardized tests are rarely changed. Accreditation practices are not changed. That's why police departments never change. And the list goes on because they will all claim that they intended and attempted to make changes. And they'll say, well, changes are not quick as though we don't know that changes are not quick. The problem is that they do not do a follow-up the same way they do regular financial audits and assessments and other audits and assessments. They refuse to make the assessment six months or annually based on demographic and cultural equity. And so that's how you know that when they do these trainings, the trainings are not based on the minoritized people. The trainings are based on the power majority people. That's as it pertains to race, that's white people around the world. As it pertains to gender, that's cisgender people around the world, men around the world. As it pertains to sexuality around the world, that's heterosexuals. As it pertains to health around the world, that's able health people. And the list goes on re regarding power. And these powers exist and they persist. For some identities, these are thousands of years. For others, such as race, that's five centuries specifically. And these Perspectives exist 
and approaches exist and persist because people pretend that changes require that you get people to dismantle their prejudices and dismantle their assumptions. And that's not possible. Every human has a prejudice. Every human has an assumption. Every human has a bias. The difference is in the ability for people to act on it. And that's where the power comes in. And that's where the power varies by race, by gender, by socioeconomic status, by economics. And that's why I do not support bias trainings because bias trainings pretend that inequities are on the level playing field, that it's everyone doing it because of bias. And therefore, everyone is responsible for changing it. And that's just not how this is. And again, Black people have done this work for centuries and explained that. But yet and still, people keep doing the same routine where they see they can make money and then where they can see that they're pretending that changes are happening so that people cannot complain. Oh, my God, Kimya. So this is a very, very complex and complicated topic. You require collection of demographic and cultural data in order to really change that. Why is that important? Yes, for example, if someone says they want to hire me to change policies regarding disability, and then I say, okay, well, how many of your employees have a disability? How many of your customers have a disability? How many of the decision makers have a disability? If they say they can't reveal that data, sometimes it means they don't have that data. So then you have to ask them from a human resources standpoint, as well as a employee retention standpoint and customer marketing standpoint, how are they really reaching people? And a lot of times they'll say, well, we never thought disability came into play regarding people's decisions. But every identity and experience that we have comes into play for practically everything that we do. And so this is why I always tell collectives that we need demographic cultural data, including like mental health organizations. You have to collect data and you have to ask yourself when you create these surveys, why are there certain identities that you leave out of the survey? And then people will oftentimes say, well, we don't want to make people uncomfortable by having this survey item on the survey. And I'm like, mm -hmm. is it making the respondents uncomfortable or making you uncomfortable? Because now you have to be honest about who you are not reaching. And I also explain this as it pertains to chambers of commerce and business groups that use GIS coding data. GIS coding data is used around the world, mapping out neighborhoods, mapping out cities, mapping out states, mapping out nations. You can map out continents and you're looking at the coding. You can locate the zip codes, area codes, tax, and you can look at all this information. That's what's used for marketing, advertising, creating mailing lists. And so that's why schools and businesses, they know all of this. They just pretend to be clueless of this when we're talking about the equity component. They pretend that they can find zip codes to send out information for something, but then they'll pretend they don't also know the income base and the racial representation, the representation in terms of LGBTQIA. So that's the selective vision that people have. And we know it's selective because they literally have access to data that they can pursue if that's what interests. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. And you say police departments and medical health providers mm -hmm. and also schools. 
have a lot in common. What is it that they do have in common? Is it that attitude that you just said, or is there anything else? Yeah, so those three collectives, when we're looking at the three collectives through the government, of course, that control our lives, they control every aspect of our lives. So medical and health services, police, law enforcement, and of course, every component of schools, including school teachers, school officials, school decision makers, they're the groups that control us since birth. They're the ones who have our records that they're keeping on us, even if we don't know it. And what they have in common is that when minoritized groups file complaints, which Black people in particular regarding racial issues and racism in general have filed complaints for many, 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 many years, even centuries. Like we talked about five centuries of medical racism, scientific racism, health racism, long before COVID-19 disproportionately harm people. Mm -hmm. And so the three collectives of schools, medical and health and police are the collectives that pretend that every complaint is a new complaint. They pretend that every problem is a new problem. And what they do is they silence the most minoritized within the student body, within the parental groups, family groups, neighborhoods. They tend to only focus on the complaints from the power majority. So you'll notice that in United States of America in particular, despite indigenous people, black people, Asians, non-white Hispanic, non-white Latinx, Latin A, Latin O people, wanting and demanding changes to the school curriculum. We're talking about a range of century, including when these schools were segregated and they forced us into schools that were struggling intentionally. Now, over the years, people pretend the problem is critical race theory, which is a theory, particularly from black theorists since the 1980s. Now people pretend the problem is banning certain books so people always pretend that these are new issues and they go based on social media hashtags, news stations, and that's every news station. And that's a problem around the world when education and media outlets, it's a form of brainwashing where people don't know that these problems have literally persisted over centuries. They've just changed different forms. And the people who've been silenced over centuries are punished and then it becomes like a new topic that people are like, oh, I wonder where this problem originated. And it literally already exists. And so that's what I always explain regarding school problems. Any school problem that people are talking about today has literally existed for centuries. Even if it didn't have COVID-19 on the top, illnesses, disability services, access to curriculum, access to school materials. And the same thing pertains when talking about military, police, medical and health services. This has all existed, just given a different name, any given moment. And so that's why I hold school decision makers, medical and health decision makers, and police decision makers, also employees accountable, because employees will oftentimes claim that they're helpless. They will claim helplessness as though they don't understand having deal breakers as well. So that's why I also explain to employees accountability on their part. And Kimya, how aware are these institutions of what you are criticizing them of? 
They are very aware. That's always been the case. So, and that's another problem with bias trainings as well, is they oftentimes will begin with this falsehood that most people don't understand their own thoughts and prejudices and beliefs unless you call them out on that. Same thing when you're talking about like privilege trainings. People don't know privilege unless you teach it to them. And how can it be taught such that they understand? Let's talk about the example of privilege. Well, I don't teach privilege so that people can understand. That's another way that my work is different. Again, Black people regarding race have explained this for centuries. Hmm. We've written books. We have songs, all of this for centuries. The books people cannot find in most libraries and most schools because it's intentionally taken away. Therefore, there's certain publishers that are chosen. There's certain authors that are chosen, including in academia and doctoral programs and medical degree programs. And this is around the world, not just USA and Canada. This is every school around the world. So I don't, when people come to me, I explain, we're not going to waste time on definitions. This is something that you all need to read, think about, discuss on your own. By the time you come to me, we're not going to say, how do we define racism? How do we define prejudice? How do we define sexism? How do we define homophobia? Because most people are taught since preschool to go based on a dictionary definition. And dictionaries and thesaurus are created by power majorities as well. And they're not taught to actually read literature. Literature meaning indigenous people have written about issues of colonialism for centuries, black people, Asians, and the list goes on. So therefore, if people are relegated to a dictionary and now people do an internet search and they're like, oh, this dictionary says racism is just, anybody can be racist. And that's not true, but that's what people still want to stick with. And so I don't waste time debating with people on that, because that's a distraction. And the same thing when talking about gender inequity. If men come to a space saying, well, this dictionary says sexism can be anybody, therefore men can be harmed. And therefore, and it becomes that huge battle, and then they accuse women of just hating men. You're not changing anything because you've wasted two hours having this wasteless argument with adults who are decision makers And people leave from it angry or they might go to lunch. But the point remains, this is why I tell people we're not going to discuss definitions. I'm going to tell you this is based on the works that have existed for centuries. You are welcome to disagree. Now, here's what we're going to actually change regarding your policies and practices. And I always encourage people to focus on the outcomes because you literally will keep doing the same thing over and over again if people pretend that you have to impress them and make them satisfied with definitions. That's not how equity and justice happens. This, Kimya, is both very, very helpful and extremely important, what you just said. Thank you so much for sharing this. I really do agree with you on the waste of time, in a way, to define certain terms. However, I would really like to learn more about the term racism and racist. Why do you not call individual white people racist, for example? Because we have centuries of white people, and this is of various socioeconomic statuses, gender identity, sexualities around the world, and religions. We have centuries of white people being the creators of racial categories, 
for the purpose of economics, colonialism, Christian missionaries, and eventual transatlantic slavery and capitalism. And in the 1980s, white people started this phrase, reverse racism and racism against white people. So they would appear on, in the United States of America, the Phil Donahue show, arguing about challenging white people is racist. And there's a such thing as racism against white people. So this is an example of white people regarding the power majority regarding race who control every school in USA, Canada, and Europe, control most schools around the world in terms of publishing materials and controlling funding for K through 12 and graduate programs around the world. And this is an example of white people claiming to be the expert on any topic and every topic including the issue of racial categorization and racism. So therefore, I am among many black people who do not waste time looking at individual level racism in terms of pretending to be interested in white people admitting any thought processes or anything of that nature, because it's very common for white people to say, and this is especially white people of the political affiliations that are considered more justice oriented. It's very common for them to say they are good and they mean well, therefore they can't be held accountable. Therefore it's everyone else's fault, but their own. And so instead of constantly explaining that, we just have to always highlight every power majority group contributes to some form of inequities. So that's the case for all white people. That's the case for all men, for all cisgender people, for all Anglo-Saxon, Protestant version of Christianity around the world. That's everyone within that group, no matter how polite, no matter how justice oriented they are, they all contribute in some way. And I always tell people we're not going to, it's not about being a kind person. It's not about if you have a family that's considered multiracial or multireligious, the case still remains that there still are inequities that still exist when people are kind among each other. And so I always want people to understand that, including white people, because if you waste time focusing on one person you're also wasting time to distract from the outcome that you want, which is actually changing policies, changing practices, not relying on politicians, not I always tell people you can't wait for laws. You can't wait for politicians because they'll change their mind. They'll promise you something for a vote and then they'll do something opposite. And what they'll say is change takes time come and vote for me for the next election. So this is why I tell people to focus on what's happening in families, communities, schools, medical and health facilities to which they are patient and the list goes on. So the same thing that pertains to individual and the same also pertains when talking about colorism. So colorism is regarding the privilege and power and celebration and beauty assumed of people with lighter melanin and I am someone of lighter melanin. That is because I'm a descendant of enslaved Africans on the stolen land that was forced to become United States of America. So my lighter melanin is because of white men and white boys raping African girls and African women. 
despite that rapist background that made me lighter melanin, I have privilege based on colorism because I'm lighter skinned. And that's not something to celebrate. And although I do anti-racism and equity-based work, never do I say I'm an exception that I can't be held accountable as a lighter skinned black woman. I myself also have to be held accountable to make sure that never do I allow spaces in which being lighter is celebrated, is represented more in every part of successes around the world. So that's how I always explain, instead of debating people individually, you have to let people know we're all held accountable if that's your power majority identity. Whew. Kimya, thank you for speaking this truth of yours so bluntly and honestly. I really appreciate that. Since we are coming to the end, is there anything you want to add? Anything you want to leave for us listeners more than that you just said? Well, thank you. So I want listeners to realize that Some things I said will come across as offensive. And that is because most people are accustomed to a book club where they read a book that addresses racism and they feel like they've accomplished something after reading and nothing's been accomplished. Most people are accustomed to attending a training and at the end of the training, nothing changes. You just check it off of your list, right? Most people are accustomed to bias trainings where They're like, oh, I have bias. And then they go back to business as usual because no one's holding them accountable to make any changes in schools and any place else. It's about really just people feeling more comfortable, feeling more empowered in being a change maker, but no one's actually saying, okay, what are you doing as a change maker? So I want people to self-reflect. If I said something to which you found offensive, particularly when I talked about white people, Why is it offensive? Because everything I said is based in centuries of what Black people have written. We've put it in songs. We've put it in poetry. We've done curriculum proposals to schools. We've done proposals to police departments. We've done patient advocacy complaints to medical and health facilities for centuries. I myself am a Black woman with a disability who's done this work throughout my life as well. So if you're offended by something, it's not that what I said is not factual. It's that I said it without making it in a tone and wording that's comfortable, particularly for white people. And if you can start to reflect on why does the focus of anti-racism work have to be on the power majority's comfort and the power majority regarding race is white people. Self-reflect on that. Why should it matter whether you are offended? Why should it matter whether you are comforted and you have approval? And you are celebrated. Same thing when we're talking about cisgender heterosexual people regarding LGBTQIA rights. Cisgender heterosexual people oftentimes go into spaces wanting to be celebrated and declared an ally. And that also is harmful because then the focus remains on cisgender heterosexual power and emphasis instead of LGBTQIA people. And that's why I always highlight equity and justice can never be minoritized people asking for permission and approval from the power majority. Because if our lives and our freedoms and our resources and opportunities are based on permission, 
then it's never freedom and resources. That's not how justice happens. Instead, it's treating us like children for the rest of our lives, asking if we can go to lunch with our friends, asking our family for permission. And that's how minoritized people are treated. So I want the listeners to self-reflect on this and think about if they got offended by something that's 100% something to reflect on what they need to work on. And when I say work on this, it's beyond just thinking about your bias. Also ask yourself, what are some changes that you can contribute to beyond fussing about a news story, beyond fussing about a president, beyond going on social media to hashtag and rant? What are some things happening? Some organizations that you can help that are not well-funded? What are some schools that need some help and they're not well-funded either? So what are some things that can really be done without people always having to tell you what to do? Because you can actually start to find some stuff to do on your own. So thank you. Please never stop advocating for all you said during the last 30 minutes. I think it's extremely important, especially also to white people who really want to contribute to changes. Thank you so much to real change, actually. I really enjoyed this profound conversation, and I hope you did too. For more episodes of Before It's Too Late, make sure to subscribe. If this episode spoke to you, consider sharing it with a friend or loved one you think might benefit from it. Thank you for listening.